I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike filling in for James and joining me in today's episode are Emmett and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street analyst team. Today we're talking about the demise of fast fashion and inherent risk of clothing stocks, Salesforce recent earnings report, and what's happening with Starbucks. Right lads, you know the story by now. I want to remind you that we have now an extended version of Stock Club that you can listen to exclusively in the My Wall Street app for free. At the end of the show, Amory and Emmett are going to pitch two companies to me that they have their eye on at the minute. I'll pick my favorite, and in the extended episode in My Wall Street, you can hear the full discussion we have as we try to figure out if it's a good investment or not. Now, uh, Amory and Emmett, how are we doing? Doing good. Yeah? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, have either of you uh, been exposed to the Dublin airport chaos that's been going on at the minute? No. I flew out two weeks ago and it was kind of fine. It, yeah. Like, I think I was only in security for like 15 or 20 minutes. It was all right. right. For, anyone, uh, for anyone listening, Dublin airport has descended into the Lord of the Flies in the air at the minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's like five hour queues. There's like a queue to swords and stuff. It's awful. I think they have like yeah. two security guards in the whole airport. Did you see? Did you see the fight that, that that happened like last week? Oh yeah, that was just thrown in for an extra bit of spice. There's a random yeah. like fist fight in the middle of Terminal One, <laughs> like immediately after security. So the security guards not only were not present in the security lane, they also couldn't be bothered to break up a fight. It went on for about three or four minutes that they were just beating each other. Yeah, what's what's your, what's been your worst travel experience, airport experience? I remember I got delayed in Rome for like twelve hours once. Hmm. When I was a kid, we once were flying from Denver to Dublin, but there's no direct flight. So we had a layover in Philadelphia airport and I was really little, like three or four maybe. And we were all sitting on the floor and my mom had a stroller and had collapsed it down. And I went to jump over the collapsed down stroller and missed it and came down and smacked my face off the ground in the airport and then just gushed blood everywhere. And they had to call an ambulance to the whole thing. And my mom was very dead set being like, I'm getting on the plane. I'm going back to I'm Ireland. And they, were, <laughs> and they were like, if her nose swells while you're on the plane, it will mean it's broken and they'll have to turn the plane around. And she was like, we'll take that risk. And we all just got on the, <laughs> we all just got on the plane with so an ice pack. I am willing to take. Emmett, what was your, do you have any um, awful Oh, stories? I do. I do. Well, it's not awful, but I, I was bringing my second son for an overnight to London and we had a big plan to do the, the, big wheel what's the big wheel? the eye of london and go to the aquarium and uh, go to wagamama under the bridge you know we had it all mapped out as you do when you're planning a big night away with your eight-year-old son and we were flying on a very well-known airline uh possibly ireland's most or even europe's most famous airline and uh we were due to fly into stansted but because for whatever reason a kind of stand-in plane arrived it wasn't branded and uh, when we were landing, I looked out the window and I turned to my son and I said, look, 
we're not actually in London. I don't know where this guy is landing us. And nobody <laughs> on the plane appeared to notice. So we landed in a in a very pleasant uh, airport at the very south of England in Southend by the Sea. And as we were landing and when we landed and everyone else had noticed what I had noticed and there was clear discontent on the plane, uh, the pilot said something about, you know, uh, we had to divert, which I don't believe to this day. I don't believe. I think whatever, however this happened, we ended up south end by the sea. And on that particular day, there was a train strike. So I had to get a taxi from south end by the sea to the Eye of London, uh, which cost, I think it was like £150 or something, because really we were only there for an overnight and our plans were made. So <laughs> it only disappoint the nature of, yeah. All right, uh, moving on to slightly well, similarly controversial topics this week. We're discussing fast fashion. So this is kind of an industry that's been faced with pretty severe derision over the past few years. It's got ridiculous carbon emissions, landfill, landfills full of waste, and a pretty poor history with regards to treatment of workers as well. Uh, we just saw one of the original pioneers of this industry misguided going into administration. So does this kind of represent a tide shift away from... $1 bikinis and $5 dresses into more sustainable fashion trends. Amory, you've been looking into this. What are your thoughts on the thing? Well, it's, it's it's really not all that shocking. I guess the economics of fast fashion, they don't really make all that much sense, especially in our current labor market and in the midst of supply chain issues. One of Misguided's most famous stunts was selling, as you mentioned, the $1 bikini for a loss merely to, to generate media attention. So they've always kind of played with the idea of, of insolvency, I guess. Um, that being said, uh, Misguided seems to be the first to fall of this subgroup because it's one of the smaller players and it has committed somewhat of a comedy of errors in, in the last few years. Firstly, they opened an in-person store in the UK. They actually opened a couple of them back in 2016, which really doesn't make all that much sense to me because essential to the concept is the ability to very rapidly turn over stock and consistently be adding new things. And surely the inconvenience of keeping a store like that stocked and maintained and constantly changing out items um, was very difficult, not to mention opening a store in the UK is inevitably going to be quite expensive and is going to compress your margins. And there was also just a complete lack of a competitive moat here. It's the same for all of the fast fashion companies. They're all just ripping off whatever the hottest contemporary style is and trying to create it as quickly as possible and get it out there. And that means that they're really just in constant competition with each other. Every single item is a competition. And Misguided is actually one of – being one of the smaller players means that they lack the scale of some of these other players, which is um, obviously a, a hindrance to their manufacturing process. And to be honest, when signs of trouble began to emerge for Misguided prior to the pandemic, this was something that management tried to fix by shortening the product lead time. Um, and it did kind of pay off temporarily in kind of going into 2020 – all it and all of its rivals rode this wave of increased consumer spending, at-home boredom, the rise of haul videos, and they were all doing pretty well. But then at the same time, they all forgot that there was going to be this massive increase in shipping expenses. Uh, Nitin Pasi, who's the founder and CEO um, of Misguided, actually said that freight costs for the business in the last two years have increased tenfold, which is astonishing. And this is something that's happening across the board. Boohoo, which is arguably the largest fast fashion uh, player, revealed in its full-year um review maybe six weeks ago that its profits nosedived 94% on a pre-tax basis due to significant increases to logistical costs in 2021. So I think misguided might be the smoke, but um, there there might be some fire in the industry. Yeah, that's going to make a big difference. Shipping $1 bikinis and freight costs going up 10 times. Yeah. I had fun researching this piece, actually, because it was kind of a bit like watching trash TV. 
But in reading an article, it said that Love Island, which is kind of the preeminent reality TV show now in the UK, is uh, going sustainable as well. It's partnering with eBay to promote vintage and pre-owned clothing instead of the companies you mentioned, Misguided, Pretty Little, Pretty Little Thing or Boohoo. Boo is this kind of a bellwether for the wider trend? Is, is the perception of sustainability now very important for brands and, and influencers too? Yeah, I, I think it's actually a wind that's been blowing for a while in both popular culture and in business. I, I don't know how up to date you guys are with Instagram influencers. Um, but there is a girl who's quite famous online. Her name is Emma Chamberlain. And she's been famous now for probably like three or four years. And the way that she initially got famous was making YouTube videos while she was in high school. And what she used to do was go to her local thrift shop and spend hours there just rifling through all of the stuff and picking out a random assortment of clothes. And then she would construct these pretty good outfits out of like the ugliest shirt you've ever seen in your entire life. And she has now gone on to become a spokesperson for Louis Vuitton. And she works with Vogue during the Met Gala. But most importantly, I see her influence in many of our trending styles at the minute. And we see a resurgence of an interest in styles from the 70s and the 80s and 90s. And people want to be referential of the past. And arguably, the easiest way to do that is to buy clothing from that era. And it tends to be of higher quality in addition, which is great. And then you can have a name brand for a much lower price. And so kind of the only way you can do that is you either have to go to Goodwill yourself and do the legwork and dig through all the items or... You need to go and shop with someone who's sourcing vintage clothing for you and pay a premium. And over the last year to two years, we've seen a number of players emerge specializing in this type of thing. And some of them have IPO'd like Poshmark and, and ThreadUp. And then we saw Depop get acquired by Etsy. And we even have eBay is leading into this heavily, as you mentioned, with their association with Love Island. They have really over the last 12 months attempted to reform the platform to better the secondhand market when it comes to vintage items and clothing. Really, though, the hard part as an investor is that secondhand clothing is really difficult to pull off at scale because there's issues around sourcing and quality. So I'd say that the market will remain pretty fresh fragmented um, and be trend driven, much like the overall fashion industry. But it definitely seems to be where spending is heading and where consumer interest seems to be spending. It seems to be heading. Mm. Emmett, do you have any thoughts on fast fashion and kind of investing in fashion and clothing in general? I remember we had a conversation way back when about about the kind of uh, ephemeralness of these trends and you can't really invest long term in them, perhaps. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, I've, I've invested in quite a few uh, fashion and fast fashion brands over the years. And as I understand it, fashion trends evolve through five pathways. The first is the runway. Uh, the second is street style. The third is celebrities. Um, the fourth is fashion bloggers. And the fifth is, you know, it's seen in the fashion capitals of the world. So traditionally, when I you know, invested in in fast fashion. It, the 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 thing I was looking at, like Decker's Outdoor Maker of Uggs, had evolved through one of those five paths. So, um, you know, but to kind of paraphrase something that Amory said is, when goods are offered in every kind of shop at a lower price, the end for particular fashion is nigh. It just is, like because as much as we, I think people of my age will recall Decker's Ugg boots they will equally recall that there was these cheap knockoffs at 10% the price. So it's, it is a notoriously difficult area to invest in. Um, and as I said, I've invested in, 
oh, I've invested in a, a high street brand called New York & Co., which went bust about two years ago. I've owned shares in Crocs, uh, Decker's Eye Doormaker, the Ugg Boot, uh, the Gap, Macy's, which, you could, you know, I know they're, they're not exactly provider of the fast fashion. Uh, Under Armour, Nike, you could argue I've, I've owned shares in both of those. And yeah, they're a sports brand, but... Uh, I don't know who else. Uh, True Religion. They were a hot brand in denim jeans, premium jeans a few years ago, and, and they emerged from Chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, protection about two years ago. I think I've probably invested in around 20 or 30 fast or quite fast fashion retails and brands before I ultimately realized it's not for me. And and as you said, Mike, there's a lot of ethical reasons to avoid investing in fashion and you know it is like fast fashion is a result of mass market retailers increasing production of of cheap lines to meet demands which and these demands and tastes change so quickly i was reading a piece not too long ago and i think it said that in the middle of new york they'll change the rack a couple of times a day to actually test what stuff is moving. So really like fast fashion is hyper fast. And, you know, when bring it back to the ethics, you know, uh, I think the low wages and, and terrible conditions for workers is one concern that you have to consider. You know, you pick up a t-shirt or you buy one online and it costs you a couple of dollars to think that everyone involved in the production of that was fairly rewarded. is completely deluded, if you ask me. And I remember... Um, a piece, a piece of research by the Global Labour Justice years ago, well, actually only about two or three years ago, said that female garment workers in H&M and Gap suppliers uh, in a factory in Asia, they were being completely exploited and mistreated, uh, you know, from abuse and poor work conditions and low wages and forced overtime and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sure the end brand did not like this and didn't want to be associated with it and put a Band-Aid on the problem. But they know that really what the consumer decides on in very many cases is the price of the garment versus substitute next door. And then there's polyester pollution, which I have to say I have a really big problem with and and a couple of years ago again there was an article in the guardian which said that microfibers from synthetic fabrics are released into our waterways uh, in and, and into our rivers and lakes and oceans every time they're washed and and ultimately these microfibers are consumed by by fish and other wildlife and that's an abomination to the planet and then finally before I get off the soapbox, <laughs> there's, you know, more, more clothing produced equals more waste. And, and there's no way all the all the clothes that are produced and delivered on pallets to fast fashion stores around the world are bought. And I, I'm not too sure what happens to them, but they probably end up in the, the dumpster or the skip at the back. I, I just somehow don't think an awful lot of the unwanted fashion ends up in the uh, in the arms of those who are less fortunate. For sure, yeah, and like so, I suppose we are seeing a more sustain, a more a trend towards sustainable fashion and everything. But then mm. to buck this trend is the Chinese discount brand Sheen Sheen Shine. Um, Sheen Sheen uh, just got a recent valuation of a hundred billion dollars in the private markets in April. Wow, really popular amongst the kind of TikTok generation. Is Sheen's rise kind of a step backward? And what did they do? Sorry uh, to interrupt. What, this what is did they this do? is a fast fast fashion brand from China. Yeah. That oh, are like, like extreme extreme discounts. 
they're the fa- like the fastest of fast fashion. Like they, wow. I think it's something that they add a thousand new items every day. Like it's just yeah. constant what? turnover of, of stuff. Um, yeah, I view Sheen's rise as a temporary trend. To be honest, I saw them become very popular at the beginning of 2020 on YouTube and Instagram with influencers doing Sheen hauls where they showed just the absolute ludicrous amounts of clothing that you could get for a hundred dollars. They would spend a hundred dollars and maybe have 25 items like it just did not make sense at all um and i think that it's somewhat a product of instagram show-off culture which i do think is actually in a decline at the minute um there does seem to be a rising awareness online that people know that this practice is unsustainable they know that it's not ethical they know that people down the line did not get paid appropriately so i think we're kind of just waiting to hit a, a limit where where enough people know about it that it, that, that it, will, it will descend in popularity. And in terms of you know whether Sheen has some sort of competitive advantage over other fast fashion companies, I just read an article in Vogue that said that even within China, Sheen is already on the decline because there are two new competitors. One's called Cider and one called Zaffle, which is just a copy and paste of Sheen that yeah. is on the is on the rise. So there's just no moat for these type of businesses. There will be constant the same way their clothes constantly turn over. These businesses will constantly turn over. Um, I think. In the West in particular, we do seem to be reaching a point where people are like, do you know what? I'd rather just spend $25 on the shirt and know it's going to last for two years than buy a shirt and wear it like once for an occasion and know if I put it in the wash, it's going to go see through. So I think it's a temporary trend. Hopefully, if you've gone through the kind of problems with fast fashion, it seems like they raise the money at the right time anyways. So, Anne-Marie, you've been kind of looking at like a lot of this industry. I remember even from our own pitch meetings and stuff. Do you have any favorites kind of being fully aware that it is a very hard industry to pick stocks from. Yeah, it is very, very difficult. As Emmett said, trends just move really quickly. If we go back and talk about Crocs, for example, I I checked Crocs the other day and the stock price today is as high as it was in 2008. We are very much in the Croc renaissance, the Crocassance, if you will. I have a pair. (laughs) I'm very proud of them. So just. I have a pair too. They're right there. They're (laughs) great. Anyway. They are you people. I didn't, I thought I knew you guys. Yeah. The future is now, old man. Yeah. Croc (laughs) slippers are 10 out of 10. They're fantastic. Yeah. Um, but they also they probably don't make a great investment because like we're in the hype cycle of Crocs right now. They'll probably be dead next year and it'll take 10 years for them to come back into popularity. And truthfully, like the only fashion brands that manage to pull off longevity are luxury brands. And that's because they manufacture desire for their products irregardless of what they look like because they can convince people that they're an investment as well as being an item of clothing. And, you know, you can think about – big name brands like Cartier, Tiffany's, and Hermes. And and typically the brands that do this the best are ones that actually aren't even making clothing. They're making jewelry and they're making leather goods that you know stand the test of time. You can buy a bracelet and have it for 100 years. And if you're interested in that type of fashion scene, I actually think the best stock and maybe the safest place to look is Farfetch'd, which just had a really good week. They just came off their earnings. And Farfetch provides the e-commerce infrastructure for basically every luxury brand on the planet. Apparently, luxury companies are really bad at setting up their own website and and fulfillment, so they just don't want to deal with it. So they just tell Farfetch to do it. Um, And that way, you really don't have to pick one brand or – you know, you don't have to stand around and watch a season of clothing and hope, oh, yeah, I think Versace is going to do really well this year. Or I think, you know, Gucci is going to be really popular for the next three years. You don't have to do that. You can just pick Farfetch'd and just and just be aware that, oh, any brand that comes and goes happens to have its infrastructure on Farfetch'd, so Farfetch'd will benefit. So I think that's kind of the fashion diversification play, if you will. Great. That was kind of a little free elevator pitch there as well. Three for the price of two. Mm. 
Uh, moving on then to uh, Salesforce, who reported earnings this week. Uh, it was kind of booking the trend of many of the tech names to report this earnings season. It bet on the top and bottom lines and even raised guidance. As always, that's going to lead to a nice little bump in share price. Salesforce has kind of been one of the pioneers of software as a service, which is now such a mainstay of Wall Street. And it's kind of this seminal B2B business. And it has just been added to the My Wall Street app in the last year. So keep an eye on that. Interestingly, co-CEO and founder Mark Benioff stated that company is seemingly immune from macro headwinds at the minute. And as he put it in billionaire speak, we're just not seeing material impact on the broader economic world that all of you are in. Um, I'm not sure if he meant to say that as condescendingly as it comes across, but we'll give him a second chance. Uh, Emish, you got a chance to look at this report. Break it down for us there. Hmm. Well, in March 1999, Salesforce wasn't <laughs> <laughs> and today it's a monster no don't worry i know i always do that i'm only joking but it, it is a monster today <laughs> this is they, like salesforce is an absolute man-eating beast of a yoke with 73 74,000 employees globally it operates in 84 cities it has 110 offices around the world and and there are eight salesforce towers notably in atlanta indianapolis uh indianapolis london new york paris san fran tokyo and Dublin, which happens to be headed by my old colleague, Caroline Lennon, and another two in development in Sydney and Chicago. So it really has come a far way since 1999. So just for our listeners, what do they do? Well, in their own words, they are the global CRM leader. So they, in their own words, empower every type of company to create a 360 degree view of their customers. In other words, it powers trillions of business-to-business and business-to-consumer interactions. So as you said, Mike, last night, they reported the year-end numbers. And here's how it's gone since those four guys started in a rented one-bedroom apartment on San Francisco's Telegraph Hill. Uh, They beat earnings, uh, again, as I said, on top and bottom lines, and management raised earnings forecast for the full fiscal year, but reduced its guidance for revenue, specifically in the quarter before we have a proper chat in the quarter they had 98 cent per share earnings versus 94 percent expected and revenue came in at 7.41 billion dollars versus an expected 7.38 billion dollars and you know there was kind of conversation around revenue from its service cloud for handling customer service inquiries generated a whole pile of revenue like i think one and three quarter billion which was well up and revenue from uh, the core sales cloud product for managing business opportunities contributed about 1.6 billion and that was up 18 percent. so it was just like one wave of good news after the next but the clangor on the call <laughs> was again as you mentioned mike where mark benioff said uh we're just not seeing material impact in the broader economic world that all of you are in all of you are in that that was the real (laughs) line there that was like the billionaires versus everyone else i think i think he is i think he is quite a like very altruistic and like charity forward person so i might give him the benefit of the doubt but Mm, it sounds really bad I'm trying to remember, did he write the book I, uh, I read called Blitzscaling? I'm sure. 
I think that's that Reed uh, Hoffman. No? Oh, Reed Hoffman. Yeah, sorry. No, yeah, I won't yeah. go there. Anyway, what, what was kind of interesting is the company's CFO, Chief Financial Officer Amy Weaver, said in the call that the company is aware of macroeconomic uncertainty, including volatility in foreign exchange rates. So they're aware of it, which is very astute, really, when you think about them up there in the ivory tower. They're aware there's problems out there. So what it says to me is, is how utterly entangled Salesforce solutions are in their clients' workflow in the way that their clients operate and manage their business, that they 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 literally are f- feeling none of the pressure that m- almost every other business is feeling. Now, they did lower their revenue guidance for 2023 fiscal year, uh, but increased their uh, view of how profitable the business would be so they've said that they they anticipate 474 to 476 uh earnings per share and 31.7 billion to 31.8 billion in revenue and previously they expected 462 to 464 per share versus 474 to 476 and also they'd anticipated about 32 billion dollars in revenue versus uh, the 31.7, 31.8. So, uh, you know, the higher earnings guidance is, you know, driven in their own words by a continuous focus on disciplined decision making across the organization. Um, and actually the CFO, Amy, Amy Weaver, went on about that. She said, as a company, we're committed to continuing to improve profitability over the long term. And what's really, I suppose, when you invest in a business and take that very long term approach, ultimately, Every business should be heading towards maximum profitability. And we invest in loads of businesses around here that uh, are, have no sign of profit <laughs> for the foreseeable future, but they're building this market. They're building this, what they anticipate as a loyal customer base and the pricing power, et cetera. Like Salesforce is there and they are now just talking about making it more and more profitable. Mm. So I suppose Salesforce could kind of be the goal for a lot of the software companies out there mm. now in terms of impervious to macroeconomic factors because they're so mission critical to a lot of businesses and then can concentrate on profitability instead of growth. Oh, um, yeah, ain't that the truth? Yeah. There was one figure that stuck out to me uh, after having a quick glance at the report. It was $13.64 billion in unearned revenue from the quarter. Uh, what uh, exactly does that mean? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, so uh, unearned revenue is money received by a company for stuff that they haven't yet provided or delivered. So it's generally recorded on a company's balance sheet as a liability, obviously enough, because it represents a debt owed to the customer. But the money is in the bank. And um, yeah, I saw that too, actually. It was, qu- it was quite the number, $13.64 million. It really stood out, yeah. So that's yeah, kind of yeah, guaranteed cash did. in the future almost. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's the value of software as a service. So looking at Salesforce this week and then Zoom last week, which posted a pretty decent earnings report, is there kind of signs of light there at the end of the tunnel for a lot of these software stocks that have been suffering over the last couple of months? I think there is. Like Zoom, yeah, you're right. Zoom revised uh, its full year adjusted earnings per share in the last call to 
$3.70 from previously $3.45, $3.50. So, and they also reported that has it now, it now is like 200,000 enterprise customers, which was up like a quarter year over year. So Zoom, yeah, Zoom turned in some great numbers. Salesforce turned in some great numbers. And I think when you look at the characteristics of the businesses that are coming out now and showing their strength, they were strong going in to the period that was the last two, three years, they're strong coming out of it. And whether, you know, there's all this conversation and we engage in a two headwinds, tailwinds, this kind of, you know, uh, narrative to talk about the forces on a business, but these businesses are giant. And I kind of picture them like these American battleships compared to dinghies. So, you know, I'm a fan of, for example, Open Door. Open Door is like a little dinghy in the middle of the ocean that I believe will be a battleship. But, you know, you look at Zoom and even more so you look at uh, CRM, uh, Salesforce, and, and they are battleships. These, uh, Whether it's headwind, tailwind, sidewind, whatever name you want to put on it, they have the economic strength and the products to actually weather the storm. Very good. Okay, for the TLDR, TLDR there, it's just invest in battleships. Don't yeah. forget. Don't forget that if you listen to this podcast on the My Wall Street app, you get the full version of one of our elevator pitches at the end of this episode. It's completely free to listen to episodes of Stock Club in the My Wall Street app. All you need to do is download My Wall Street on iOS or Android and create a My Wall Street account. Uh, let's dig into Mailbag. So, and we're going to turn to the app again for this week where, Amory, you've been updating some of our stock comments. Let's go to Starbucks, which is facing a fair bit of upheaval there recently. Some leadership changes, unionization efforts, and a slowdown in China. Tell me kind of what's the, what's the lowdown in Starbucks at the minute? What's going well for yeah. Starbucks? It's, it's, it is having a bit of a hard time. I mean, China has long been the growth story for Starbucks. It represents about a third of their business and their expansion there is often touted as, as being one of the next great tailwinds for the coffee house. Um, unfortunately, though, because of lockdowns in China and an overall slowdown in consumer spending in the region, we have seen same store sales there sink 23% since a year ago. It's a bit of a hit. This has put a damper on these expansion efforts and has really hurt the stock. I think Starbucks is almost flat from where it was five years ago. It's down, I think, more than 35% this year. So it is having a hard time. However, American sales look pretty good. Net sales are up 14.5% last quarter and same-store sales climbed 12%. The real crux of the issue, though, for the U.S. is going to be the continued unionization effort, which we've seen across social media. I think now we have more than 100 locations have been unionized in the United States. That being said, Howard Schultz, who's very much CEO extraordinaire, he has, he was at Starbucks for decades. He's very much credited with making Starbucks a great place to work in the post-2008 era. Um, he is coming back as – I believe they're calling him interim CEO – but there hasn't really been any kind of concrete plans to replace him. So I don't know how long he's going to be there. But he has indicated in several calls that he wants to quell the concerns of workers interested in unionization by attempting to restore Starbucks to this status of being a really great place to work. So I think that that actually could be great and will maybe help with some of the margin pressure that unionization might apply to Starbucks. That being said, in probably the near term, I would expect gross margins to compress where, you know, in, a, in an inflation environment, Starbucks imports an awful lot of coffee beans, and that tends to uh, lead to price increases. But Starbucks tends to weather price increases pretty well. We've seen it in the past when they're forced to raise prices. Traffic tends to stay pretty steady, if not increase. So in terms of the long term, I'm not worried about Starbucks. It's just such an iconic brand, but it does seem to have a little bit of a short-term headache. But I suppose if you're looking for a pretty solid foundational stock with a bit of a dividend, not 
too quick moving, but just chugging along. I, I think I think it's still a pretty good winner for you. Okay, and you can read more about Amory's thoughts in my Wall Street. Just uploaded, just updated this week. Okay, let's finish out today with an elevator pitch. Amory and Emmett, what company is on your watch list at the minute? Emmett, I'll start with you. I'm going to pitch a UK-based business that is listed on the London Stock Exchange, and it's called Naked Wines. And its UK ticker is wine, W-I-N-E. It's also listed on the OTCQX, which is one of the uh, top tier over-the-counter marketplaces with the ticker N-W-I-N-F. So what Naked Wines does is they connect everyday wine drinkers with the world's best independent winemakers. And there's six pillars for the investment case that I like. The first is they have a disruptive business model that delivers a better product to consumers. The second is there's a large underpenetrated market, most especially in America, uh, the US, I mean. Uh, The third reason is they have a unique solution. And for winemakers, uh, that means they can lean on on naked wine strengths. The fourth uh, reason, or uh, I suppose pillar of investment is they have a subscription model, which is mean they have a loyal customer base, attractive unit economics, recurring revenue. The fifth reason is powerful data and analytics, they provide better insights and decision-making. And the final reason, they have tons of cash. They have sufficient cash to keep scaling the business. Very interesting. Wine as a service, the new mm-hmm. acronym. Yeah. Uh, uh, Amory, what about you? What's your elevator pitch? I, to maintain our luxury theme from earlier, I'm going to be pitching Steinway musical instruments of oh, the nice. famous is, Steinway pianos. This is yes. the most relaxing elevator pitch ever. Wine and pianos. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel very, very attuned to this one. Go on. After after we just went on for several minutes about how great software stocks are, yeah. let's come back down to yeah. earth. <laughs> um, so, of course, Steinway is the legendary producer of the world's best pianos. It was established in 1853 in Manhattan by Heinrich Engelhard Steinweg, actually. And then he later became known as Henry Steinway. There you go. And when we talk about brand recognition and luxury recognition, it would be difficult to get better than Steinway. It is in a world of its own. They are world renowned, and you would hope so because the average Steinway piano costs between $60,000 and $340,000. They are very, very expensive. But 97% of concert pianists in the world play on a Steinway piano. So if you're looking for a luxury stock, it might be mm. Steinway. This is a tough choice now. Um, Right. Well, I think I'm going to stick with the pianos just because wine as a service sounds a bit dangerous and subscription wine <laughs> delivered to your house maybe isn't the healthiest benefit to our listeners. So uh, for our extended elevator pitch, we're going to go with Steinway Musical Group for Amory. Right, lads, if you're listening to the free version of Stock Club, this is where we're going to leave you today. If you want to find out more about Steinway Musical Instruments and what we can think of it as a potential investment, however, jump over to the My Wall Street app and you can listen to the rest of our conversation on the company. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends and leave us a review, preferably a good one, and whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. 
Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.